Hi, this is Rick Emmett of Triumph, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, this is Tom Gimmel from Foreigner, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, this is Steve Morse, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Welcome to episode 268 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 268, we have two members of legendary bands in the world of classic rock. We have joining us Tom Gimble from the band Foreigner, who will be in to do a show at First Niagara on June 28th with Kid Rock. And we have Rick Emmett, uh, frontman and guitarist, uh, most notably of the band Triumph, uh, is doing a show with uh, his partner Dave Dunlap out of the Hard Rock Cafe in June on the 12th at the Hard Rock Cafe. So a chance to see one band in a, in a historically large venue and a very intimate show with another. So what we're going to do, we're going to get into the interview with Tom Gimbel of Foreigner. Tom Gimbel has been around the world of rock for, for many, many years. Had an opportunity to see him back in... Uh, the 90s i believe it was uh playing keys and saxophone and things for aerosmith of all bands uh was with them during their really huge run in the geffen days uh and then has moved over into foreigner and has been with foreigner for a very very long time uh man of all instruments plays saxophone plays guitar uh, sings, which is is vital if you've ever seen Foreigner live, and they're going to be doing a show at First Niagara with Kid Rock, as I mentioned. Uh, it's the cheap date tour. It's, tickets are twenty bucks. Uh, twenty bucks to see Foreigner is a deal, uh, let alone getting to see Kid Rock as well. So it's a really fantastic show. So, without further ado, let's get into that interview with Tom Gimble. Got him on the show, but we're welcome back, Tom Gimble of Foreigner. How you doing, Tom? Doing great, thanks, John. Iron City rocks. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Uh, I had an opportunity to speak to you. It's like I said, it's been almost two years since I think you guys were in Pittsburgh. Uh, you guys had done a, a headlining show in um, at uh, one of our theaters here, and uh, it was awesome to get a chance to see you guys live. I have to admit, it was the first time I'd seen Foreigner live. And uh, I was really floored by the show. You guys, uh, incredibly tight band. Uh, very excited that you'll be coming back around uh, with Kid Rock. Uh, you'll be doing a show here uh, in June. So I uh, wanted to touch base, see how things are going with the band. Obviously, um, Mick is back. Uh, it looks like in, in good health and doing shows with you. Um, do you want to talk uh, just a little bit about how, how Mick is doing these days? 
Sure. Uh, I don't know if you remember Richard Nixon, but they used to have a bumper sticker that said, you know, Nixon in 85, he's mm-hmm. tanned, he's breasted, he's ready. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I don't know how many votes he got, but yeah. Not that Nick is anything like uh, Nixon, but anyway, he's uh, he's tearing, he's resting, he's ready. And we just did some shows down in uh, New Zealand with Hart, massive festivals down there. And Mick got up and played with Hart, uh, and Ann Wilson came and sang with us. It was a fantastic trip, so we really enjoyed uh, Australia and New Zealand. So things are going. Things are just cooking. You know, we're getting ready for this uh, kind of summer party with Kid Rock. Nick has already been hanging around with Kid Rock, flying around on Kid Rock's plane. I don't know what kind of trouble those two will get into, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's... even up to them, uh, Nick certainly knows what he's doing at this point, and uh, it's just great to see him back in good health and rocking out as ever on guitar. Yeah, I think the thing that, that kind of took me, you know, I mean, obviously I think, uh, you know, people think of Foreigner, you know, the, the obvious kind of hits come to you. But the thing that I think, you know, when you really step back, there's so many songs in there that you hear and you don't even necessarily in your head register that, hey, that was a Foreigner song that you guys are putting together, you know, 90, you know, 100 plus minute sets of songs that everyone knows every word. And that's really, I think, what floored me. And, and not only playing them but the band is so exceptionally tight um is there anything in particular you attribute that to i mean obviously you guys a lot of you have been playing together now i mean you've been with foreigner for 20 years now 21 years uh, something like that jeff has been with you guys i mean what do you think brings that cohesion it's it's well-rehearsed band uh top level players our drummer chris frazier he's been with us for a few years now so he's really found his way and found a niche, you know, and it's just, it just gels and it grooves. The music itself is that kind of music that needs to be played that way, you know, it has to mm-hmm. be cohesive. And uh, we're just lucky enough to, to be able to do it enough so that it does reach that level of, of tightness that you're describing. And, mm-hmm. and thank you very much for that. That's a huge compliment. It's certainly something we strive for. Yeah, now, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, you play i think every instrument under the sun at some point during the set when when mick found you did was yeah i mean was this something where he you know had became aware of what you were doing with aerosmith and just kind of came knocking or, or did you answer an ad saying need a man who plays every instrument imaginable or how, how did that happen they uh they were putting out feelers at atlantic records at the time Okay. I was trying to ask around, and uh, a guy from Atlantic was playing with a friend of mine, Ricky Phillips, and said, Farner's kind of looking for a guitar player that also plays the sax. Strange combination. And Ricky said, oh, I, I got the guy for you. And he gave them my number, and that's when they called. So it was fun, because I think they did had, had seen the um, video or live playing with Aerosmith, so they knew that I knew my way around the stage. But... <laughs> They wanted to see what kind of person I was. So my audition was we went out for dinner and drinks. <laughs> and so yeah. I told some jokes and did some impersonations, and uh, they thought that was okay. So I went started on the road. Now, uh, in in that time period, you know, when you were with Aerosmith, uh, did you had you left Aerosmith before you officially became involved with Foreigner or even talked Foreigner, or was this something that they kind of lured you away from Aerosmith? No, it was in between. It was okay. interesting. I was kind of like ping pong in between. 
Aerosmith would go off and do an album. I would go to Foreigner, and then uh, Foreigner would do an album, and I actually went back to Aerosmith. So I really was getting kind of dizzy there going back and forth. Yeah. But uh, once 1995 rolled around, I was full-time with Foreigner and have been ever since. It's a much better fit for me because I get to play guitar. Yeah. And I love that. You know, the power chords, the riffs, everything about it. it it's something I always wanted to do. Uh, Aerosmith was more keyboard-oriented. Sure. And as, as much fun as that was, it was the thrill, thrill of a lifetime. But uh, Foreigner has been even better for me for that reason. Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting way to look at it, you know, because you think, okay, we, you know, 1995, Aerosmith, you know, that, that's a pretty big organization, you know, at the time, and sure. for, Foreigner was kind of coming yeah. back around, so, you know, it was a little bit of a, you know, maybe a gamble, um, you know. Yeah, both. It was, yeah, it was no no brainer for me because I always wanted to play guitar, and keyboards yeah. was not my passion. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of singing though. I love the singing part, Stephen. A lot of rehearsing, uh, mm. doing exercises. We laughed, and we were singing these soaring two-part harmonies. It was very rewarding in that sense. Uh, but it was a much better fit for me in Foreigner. Yeah. Now, when you know, did working with Stephen and the way Stephen, you know, kind of wants things done, make it easier when when it came to working with Mick? Because obviously, Mick is 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 Foreigner. Uh, does it yeah, make it, you yeah. know, kind of get inside of the head of, of the musical geniuses and, and know what's expected of you? It was surprisingly simple in both cases. I I never expected uh, that level of, of trust. You know, these guys were not looking over my shoulder to see what notes I was playing on the keyboard or guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was extraordinary. They, they gave me so much leeway and uh, just encouraged me especially in Foreigner's case, they would encourage you to, to take it to the next level. Right. And uh, same thing in, in Aerosmith, Joey Kramer, the drummer, wanted more saxophone. And, and we did a funky thing. It was like a Tower of Power. He's a huge fan of Tower of Power. So we yeah. did this drum and sax, funky breakdown, kind of like James Brown thing. And there was a lot of that. So the, the musical aspect of it was very open. And uh, I was surprised by that and delighted by that. Uh, even Joe Perry talking to me about the piano parts I was doing. Mm-hmm. He and I both were big fans of Chuck Berry and his piano player, Johnny Johnson. So when I started playing like that, Joe would come over to me and go, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it was never, it was never a case of like, oh, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. It was always a case of, yeah, yeah, we like it, do more. So that's really, really nice to, to come across that. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I mean, especially, you know, in the 90s, you know, late 80s, early 90s, you know, a lot of, you know, you know, like Ozzy, you know, there was keyboards there. It was, you know, you listen to the record, it's there. If you took that track out, you would certainly miss it. But, you know, it was like they didn't really want to acknowledge it. It's, it's you know, I'm sure, you know, great for you to be able to walk out and, you know, here I am in the band photos and, and that kind of stuff is got to be great. Yeah, I really found a home and a family. Mick and Lou were were very much uh, outspoken about that fact. When you're when you're in Foreigner, you're part of the family, and you're in the pictures and all that. Yeah, it goes with it. It was really did warm my soul. Yeah, yeah, which is great. So you guys um, recently redid um, Foreigner Four live. You want to talk about um, how much fun that was to go back? Because I'm sure you know, is with any you know kind of classic band, there's songs you have to do night after night. Uh, and, and in your case, they fill your set list, so it might have been really cool to go back and do some of these songs that you don't do every night. 
so true. Were you there? By, are you in the band? How do you know all this? So true. <laughs> I listen <laughs> to everything you're saying. I listen yeah. to a lot of music. Everything you're saying is so right on the money. Uh, we were delighted to, to post this project and start doing songs like Nightlife and Girl on the Moon uh, and Break It Up. Paul Kelly Hansen did such a phenomenal job seeing Break It Up. It was uh, yeah. it was spine tingling. You know, you would get like shivers because uh, he's that good, especially on that song or all these songs. Really, same with uh, Nightlife. It's just wonderful to hear him singing these kind of showcase. You know, these songs are kind of showcases for the vocalist. Yeah. And uh, he just steps up there and knocks it out of the park. It's uh, it's really something to witness. But we had Girl on the Moon and Break It Up and uh, Woman in Black. Yeah. Really cool rock song. So, yes, absolutely. To answer your question, we were delighted to, to mix it up a little bit and have some, some songs that we hadn't been doing previously. We also did an acoustic version of Girl on the Moon, which mm. uh, was really, really uh, had a nice timbre to it. Uh, so it was it was a great project. We really enjoyed it. The background vocals, you're you're able to really focus in on them in this kind of situation, mm. and we were able to to dust these songs off and give them a nice fresh coat of paint. Yeah. Now I have to admit, you know, right out of the track, right off the bat, I mean. You listen to Nightlife, and I'm thinking this song has to find its way back into your set list. You know, yeah. I mean that that song came out phenomenal. It was such, you know, I don't know if that's the night you recorded it. If that was the lead off, yeah, but I, I would hope so. These are some of these songs we used to do actually uh, in, the, in the early 2000 era, 2006, 2007. We used to do Nightlife. I think we could break it up at 1.2. So they're not that boring, and I. I'm hoping to see them in a regular schedule once mm -hmm. in a while. Yeah, like a change-up kind of oh. alternative. When, when the idea of, of, you know, revisiting some songs that the band hasn't done in a while comes up, does, do somebody have to kind of go away and work on arrangements for that? I know, I recall in one of your live DVDs, they mentioned Jeff had worked out an arrangement, an acoustic arrangement to a song. Does somebody usually take a song kind of by the horns? Typically... We try to uh, know our parts, you know, just from listening, and, and from years, in my case, from years of playing with Nick. But right. uh, that song you mentioned is Say You Will, yeah. that Jeff did a, an acoustic arrangement of. Yeah. That was something, that was a project that he just got into and ended up taking it to the next level, and he played for Nick, and Nick loved it. So yeah. that's how that song came about. But typically, uh, there's not anyone really calling the shots. Everyone's responsible Okay. And, and sometimes Nick might tweak it. He'll say, what are you playing on this section? And he might say, oh, maybe try this instead, or mm -hmm. something along those lines, or, or you know, maybe try something else. Instead of saying, try this, he might say, what else would you do there? So it's that kind of low level, just fine-tuning that is wonderful to have Nick there for, because he's the guy that wrote the songs here. You know? So who, who better to steer the ship? We have complete faith. And the guy that created these uh, these pieces of work. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's not. Um, now, when you go out with Kid Rock, I mean, do you guys have a, a particular set list in mind, or you just kind of have to decide what to take out of the set list, or how do you how do you approach that? Yeah, I think we'll probably try and, and restructure it a little bit. Uh, depends on what the time allotment is. 
but we'll try and, and fit as much good stuff in there as we can. And that's you know, the name of the game when you're out on a big hill like that. Now, uh, one thing that I know has, has kind of always bothered me uh, with Foreigner, uh, 80 million albums sold, and there's a building in Cleveland that still seems to forget you guys exist. Um, any thoughts on the Hall of Fame? <laughs> Not really. Uh, we're just sort of happy no matter what happens. You know, I think the main thing for us is that people show up at the concerts that's that's where we live, and that's the true test of, of the popularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Mick and Lou certainly deserve all the credit in the world. They were just recently inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Sure. So there's some recognition for the work as songwriters, and uh, you know anything may happen in the future or or not happen. I think it's fine either way. We're just really grateful to the people themselves that uh, keep us going strong on the road. Yeah, yeah, and, and for those who haven't had an opportunity to catch the band, as I said, I, I cut you guys last time, and really floored. I mean, it was one of those things where I, you know, I'll fully admit being a little bit skeptical because I mean, obviously, I hadn't seen Kelly live other than DVD. You come out, Kelly nails it um, to the point I had to go back and listen to the Hurricane albums to make sure this was the same guy. <laughs> it was like, you know, yeah, I, I. I, I I had the I had the cassette of Hurricanes, uh, you know, living over the edge and stuff. And I was like, you know, I remember the guy, but boy, I don't remember him sounding like this good. You know, obviously yeah. Jeff Jeff is a, a you know his work with Dawkins goes without speak. Uh, and even the night, yeah. you know, the night in Pittsburgh, I know uh, Mick was having some health issues and wasn't able to do the show. And even at that, phenomenal show, start to finish, you know. So it's uh, certainly yeah, it's a, cooking yeah. band. Jeff Wilson on bass, such a powerhouse. He gets together with our drummer, and it's like a freight train. Yeah, yeah, and the and the harmonies that that's you know probably the one thing that you guys can't you know no one can mail it in there you know I mean you've got three guitars so it's probably you know possible for you know somebody not to pull their weight but you, there's no way anyone can hide on the vocals. Yes, mm-hmm. we're so happy about the vocals. Uh, that is something we rehearse a lot and uh, have continued to feel good about improving. Constantly trying to improve those uh, background harmonies. And Kelly's a great source of inspiration because he sings so well. And yeah. he will also uh, share his knowledge. And he's extremely knowledgeable. And uh, so he, he gives us little tips on technique and how to phrase things and how to sing things. And I think that might be uh, part of what's helping us. And we're sure glad to hear that you can hear the spirit uh, sounding good. Yeah, it's it's got to be a blessing and a curse having you know a, a front man with that kind of range that you guys have to harmonize with. You know, it would, <laughs> probably would be nice. Yeah. To, you know, it'd probably be a whole lot easier to harmonize with Bob Seger uh, than try to, to to fill in with Kelly's vocals. But uh, well, we will look yeah. forward to you. Uh, you'll be coming into Pittsburgh on June uh, in June with uh, Kid Rock. Uh, playing at the first Niagara, so you know I would expect with the fantastic uh, thing that Kid Rock has going with the you know cheap tickets and the you know, cheap beer, cheap parking. Um, really, in this, really in this day and age, a, a brilliant idea. You know, why not? You yeah. Know, why not sell fifteen thousand seats at twenty bucks a ticket instead of you know six at fifty dollars a ticket? So you know the sheer oh, math of it plus the energy you you, you know you get off a crowd like that's going to be fantastic. So I wish you guys all the best on the tour, and we'll look forward to seeing you then. Thank you very much. We'll, we will be there, ready to rock. All right, Tom. Thank you so much, and like I said, we'll see you when you get into town. All right. Appreciate your help. All right. All the best, man. 
The $20 ticket is back. Kid Rock in concert. With special guest, Foreigner. June 28th, First Niagara Pavilion. All pavilion seats and lawn tickets just 20 bucks. Tickets on sale now at all Ticketmaster locations and online at LiveNation.com. Kid Rock, new album available now. All right, giant thanks to Tom Gimble of Foreigner. Had an opportunity to catch Foreigner a couple years ago and, and honestly was blown away. Uh, Kelly Hansen, uh, for those of you who are not a big fan of, of when a band replaces a singer, Kelly Hansen does a phenomenal job of bringing energy to that show. He was uh, the vocalist of uh, the band Hurricane. Many of you may remember with Robert Sarzo, they had a, a really fantastic album. Uh, Over the Edge was one of the songs, and I'm on to you. Um, and his voice lends very, very well to Foreigner. Uh, Mick Jones had some health issues, wasn't able to make the last Pittsburgh show. Uh, but even without Mick, uh, the spirit was certainly there and just a set chock full of hits. Uh, and Kid Rock, you know, is another phenomenal performing artist. So it's a great chance. Tickets are available at LiveNation.com. The tickets are like 20 bucks, so you really can't go wrong. And uh, I think T-shirts and beer and things are all discounted as well. So it should be a fantastic night to fill 15,000, 20,000 people out there. Uh, we're going to turn our attention to a much more intimate show with another la- legendary rock uh, guitarist. Uh, we have Rick Emmett of the band Triumph, most notably. He's doing a show with Dave Dunlap, who he's been doing uh, tours with for a number of years. Uh, Rick is a really, really fascinating guy to talk to. I've had an opportunity to talk to him twice now uh, through the Iron City Rocks podcast, and he's just a really enjoyable guy to talk to um, in Foreigner. Um, obviously had many, many hits, as I alluded to, but Triumph, uh, you know, in the United States, we think of a uh, couple of the big hits, but if you go back and listen to their catalog, there are a lot of songs you forgot they had, um, you know, and Rick does a great job of those t- to this day. Uh, we kind of joke about some of the notes he hits uh, back in the 80s and the difficulty of hitting those today, um, but uh, it, it was really, really great to get a chance to talk to him, and we had a nice long conversation. So without further ado, let's get with Rick Emmett. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to the show the incomparable Rick Emmett. How you doing, Rick? I'm doing fine. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you did the show. It's probably been close to four years, I believe, uh, since we had the chance to talk. You're going to be coming in uh, in June on the 12th to do a show at the Hard Rock Cafe uh, in Pittsburgh with uh, Dave Dunlap. wanted to give folks a chance to, to kind of up to speed on, on what the material you're doing and, and the type of music you play and things going on with your career, if we could. Um, the shows you do with Dave, are these, would you consider them more jazz-based shows? Not really. No, I think they're, I would, the, the, the easiest way to describe them is that they're eclectic. <laughs> but they pretty much center on the songs that um, were from the Triumph era. I mean, obviously, okay. people that uh, are, you know, going to come and see a Rick Emmett show or Rick Emmett from Triumph. Oh, I wonder if he's going to play, you know, Magic Power or Hold mm-hmm. On or Lay It On The Line or, you know, like, so at my age and stage, you can't necessarily escape the idea of the classic sure. rock greatest hits. But, of course, it's just two guys with acoustic guitars, so they have a, a very kind of stripped-down, unplugged kind of vibe to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of functions as the as the core stuff. And then 
I mean, over the years, I think there were like, you know, maybe 12 or 13 albums I did in Triumph, and there's probably even 15 albums I've done since. There's a lot of instrumental stuff that Dave and I sort of just kick each other's butts. We, mm-hmm. you know, we, we do a lot of things where we can blow a little bit, or we play fingerstyle kinds of things that have been worked out for two guitar arrangements. So things like, say, Midsummer Daydream off of the Thunder 7 album, you know, we've been doing that practically every night. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, so they're, they're, that's kind of what it's like. And then there's some jokes and some fun and some cover tunes thrown in, and Dave sings one, and uh, we do a Monty Python song, and you know, <laughs> we have some fun. Yeah. You don't get many Monty Python on set lists. That's great. Um, <laughs> are, are these done, is this a purely acoustic show, or do you guys get to break out the electric? No, it's 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 all uh, acoustic. And okay. of course, that that's a bit of a misnomer, too, because, I mean, Acoustic guitars plug in, and so now they're electric. Yeah, <laughs> and that means you got a pedal board in front of you. Well, that means you can use a wah wah pedal if you want. Like you know, so we sure. obviously we we take our liberties, um, but uh, it's essentially an acoustic kind of a show. Sure. Does this um, sort of uh, delivery and the chance to go back and do kind of rearrange these songs for two guitar like this? Does this Keep the music interesting. Obviously, I mean, as you mentioned, with, with as a classic rock artist with with a defined greatest hits, people expect to hear you know power of the music and things like that. Does it make this a little more interesting for you to get to play with the arrangements and things as opposed yeah, to doing it? Does. it like, yeah, you know, it keeps it fresh. And it, and um, but I, you know, I mean, part of it too is as you get older, you realize I was writing these songs, you know, in my twenties and my mm-hmm. early thirties and. You know, I had a certain kind of vocal range then, and mm-hmm. so that part of it too, you go, well, this is a challenge because, yeah, how do I hit those high notes that I can't really hit anymore? Or how can we change the key? Or how can I make it so that the melody remains interesting, even though I might not be able to, you know, do it exactly the way it was on the record thirty sure. years ago? You know, so that's part of it too. You're in the same way that let's say. You're like an athlete, and and you know you're getting towards the end of your career, and you've got mm. to figure out ways not to get your head knocked off, or sure. you know tear a hamstring when you're just trying to leave the bench. You know, yeah. like if that's part of it too. It's a you know rock and roll is a very physical kind of a thing, and and um, so that's part of it. But the other thing is, uh, how can you morph whatever it is that you're doing so that you, you give yourself vehicles uh, for expression of of you know, for one of a better term, sort of taste, good taste, you know, what might sort of be something that makes your emotions a little more accessible mm-hmm. uh, instead of all that sort of cocky bravado of, hey, look at me, I'm a young guy and I'm singing this rock song, you know, that sure. sometimes the, 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 it's not necessarily the challenge of it, it's more like the, the joy of it is that the song is allowed to sort of speak and breathe in ways that it can't when you've got, you know, a drummer and a bass player and, and everybody's grinding it out at 110 decibels, you know, mm. like, that, I, I enjoy that. I'm not saying I don't, but in many ways, uh, maybe just because of my own tinnitus, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a little, it's a little more interesting for me when I do acoustic shows. I enjoy it a little more. Yeah, and, and I have to give you all the credit in the world. You're the first singer I've heard actually admit that they take steps to make the songs, you know, sing to the range they have today as opposed to the range on the album. Yeah. Uh, and, and going back, I was listening to the, um, I think it was the remastered uh, Greatest Hits album you guys had out a few years ago with Triumph, and I was listening to some of the stuff, and I'm like, boy, I wonder, you know, in thinking of things to talk about, if you regret 
you know, today some of the notes you hit back then because you, <laughs> you set the, you know, you set that so high. It's kind of like if if you were a pitcher, um, you know, in your late 30s, you know, who relied on a fastball, you might look back in time and say, I wish I was a knuckleball pitcher. Yeah. You know, so I well, I, I don't regret it, and and I don't think uh, regret. I don't, I don't, I don't have time or room for regret. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. um, certainly there's times where I, I if, and I don't spend a lot of time revisiting the past mm-hmm. and listening sure. to old recordings and going, oh wow, you know, like and when I do, I often go, man, who is that guy? <laughs> I don't even recognize who that guy is anymore. You know, because I've gone through an evolution to be sure. where I'm at. And I didn't really dwell on the past or try to hold on to it. You know, mm-hmm. it was going by, I was letting it go by degrees, mm-hmm. you know. And so it doesn't seem that radical to me. I'm sure, you know, somebody that hasn't seen me for 35 years would go, oh, my God, like, what, mm-hmm. what happened to the guy? You know? yeah. But that, that would happen for anybody, you sure. know, and, and anybody that reacts to it in a negative way, they're sort of just trying to deny the fact that, we all grow older and, and things change and, and you have to morph and, and evolve with with that, you know, if you, if you want to remain comfortable in your own skin. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, you know, there are times where I think I can't lose the energy of what I did. I can't mm-hmm. lose the, the, the impact. And, and, of course, back in the day, it might have been a question of, okay, I can go higher. No, I can go even higher. You know? <laughs> um and I could, and so I did. And maybe that's, you know, that's a sign of youth. That was a sign of the guy that I was back then. You know, I mm-hmm. also wore ridiculous spandex pants from time to time and had really bad haircuts and, hey. you know, but they weren't, I didn't look so bad in those spandex pants back then. Yeah. <laughs> and the haircuts were kind of part of what the, you know. So, I mean, I, we all look at pictures of ourselves from our grade eight graduation or our high school mm. yearbook and then go, oh, my gosh, you know, yeah. what, who was that pimply fool, you know? And it's no different when there's pictures of you and videos on YouTube where, you know, I have students in my college class that will say to me, hey, we watched a video from the US Festival in 1983. Wow, you know, we had no idea. You know, yeah. That's right. I'm an old fart in a suit, yes, but, yeah. you know. There was a time when I ran around in front of a quarter of a million people. Yes, it's true. Yeah, and hey, you wouldn't want to change that, you know, regardless no. of what you're wearing. That's That was a, a moment in time that, uh, you know, will forever live in, in rock history. Um, how would you compare yourself today as a guitarist versus, you know, 30 years ago? How would you describe the evolution of your playing? Well, I'd like to think that I'm a more thoughtful player. I'd like to mm-hmm. think that I have a little bit more... I think one of the things that you see with a lot of guitar players, not just me, uh, would be like, for example, Jeff Beck. Back in the day, he he always played with a pick, and then mm-hmm. the, late, the older he got, the more he started ditching the pick and just playing with his fingers, so that it, his skin could be on the strings and he could have a little bit more of a kind of a dynamic mm-hmm. um, interaction with the guitar. And I think that happens with a lot of guitar players. You know, you start out and you might be somebody that plays with a pick all the time, and then you know, you get a little later in life and you're starting to have a little bit more Mark Knopfler in your playing, a little, sure. a little bit more of the Jeff Beck kind of, you know, skin on the string kind of thing. So, and the other thing is, you know, I'm not uh, as worried about blazing speed mm-hmm. uh, or, or you know, pyrotechnical kinds of things, which, you know, making Triumph albums in the 80s, 
as MTV was converting rock bands into hair bands, you know, and and then, oh, we were all going to get thrown in the trash because here came grunge. Mm-hmm. You know, there was all of that kind of stylistic stuff that, that would you couldn't escape the the impressions that it made on you and what it ended up doing to your music because you wanted to get your songs on the radio. You wanted to try and be on MTV, so there were certain kinds of things you were doing. See, now I don't worry about any of that stuff anymore. You know, yeah. it's, Now it's a question of if a song comes to me or an idea comes to me and, and I start writing it, I just go and I, ta- I tell this to my songwriting, my songwriting students all the time, you got to... The, the thing about wisdom, the thing about craft that you gain with time is that you get better at listening to what the song is trying to tell you it wants to be. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're listening to the music and you're hearing it dictate its terms or, or, or give you the impression of what it, what you want to try and do with it in terms of style and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're younger, and, you know, this is just, I'm not faulting you for it. I just think it's its the nature of the beast. I think there's always that sort of superimposition of ego. Like, oh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the song do this. Yeah. And so they make stylistic choices kind of based more on their own ego and their own personality than on what the music is, is you know, sort of trying to say. Sure. And, and so, you know, I work with students about that, you know, that they have to sort of park their ego at the door and, you know, you know Inevitably, you have to have an ego to to be an artist, to be creative, because you're wanting to say, "Hey, world, you know, I have this thing here. Are you interested mm-hmm. in my thing? Here's my thing. Check out my thing." You know. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that exhibitionism at work. There's a little bit of ego at work, but um, I think the, the 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 sort of the the shift that occurs is that instead of it being about one's own personality and one's own ego, it becomes more about the work that that personality and ego is starting to develop. And, and you know, that's the old cliche, right? You, you're mm. watching American Idol and the guy sitting on the panel will say to the singer, look, kid, you got to make the song yourself. Like, you, it, it, you, you've got to turn the song into your own thing. You can't just mimic somebody else's version of it. Or, hey, you pick that song and that song is burying you. You don't have the ability to handle the song of that size or that impact or you know you have to pick the thing that suits your instrument and all of those kinds of things are the things that come with age and with you know with wisdom that you kind of figure out yeah you know um there's a humility in the whole process and probably when i was younger i didn't have as much as i should have should have had during the creative phases you know and now, yeah, maybe sometimes I have a little too much. You know, now, you know, that's one of the things that age does to you. It kind of makes you second guess and third guess and fourth guess. And I do a lot of drafts of songs nowadays before I get to the point where I go, yeah, 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 okay, you know, maybe I'll play this one in public. <laughs> let, let me ask one thing that, that, that I, I often think about, you know, and people maybe don't give enough thought to is that, you know, when you were a band, you know, with Triumph and, and you guys were, Obviously, at the top of your game and releasing many hits, how much of an influence do record label executives at that point in time exert over the type of music you're making versus you know musicians today who may be doing pro tools at home uh, you know completely on their own how How big of a change in the spectrum is that? Well, certainly, you know, they did have influence in the sense that and we were pretty much left to our own devices over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. You know, we had our own recording studio and, and we did our own things. 
But of course, you deliver the record, and then mm. they go, "Yeah, this is terrific, guys." So we don't hear a single. So can you yeah. give us a single? You know, and then you have to sort of go through the dance of that. And now do you want to fight the political battle of saying, no, no, we thought this song was a single, so we really want this song. And they go, yeah, well, gee, we don't really hear that. Where are the hooks? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there were those battles that happened all the time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like a song, like, for example, Somebody's Out There, that wasn't on the album we delivered. And then the record company said, you know, we we need something, guys. Come on, you got to give us something. And I kind of wrote that song in my own home studio, took it to the other guys in the band, said, don't argue with me about this, let's not (laughs) debate it, just play the parts that I've written, the modulations where I put them, this and this and this, and let's go, let's do it. And so we did it and delivered it, and the record company goes, yeah, great. And that song went, you know, I don't know, top 20 in Billboard or, Mm -hmm. you know, something. You know, it it did all right. It charted better than anything else we'd ever had. So, you know, there were games that we would play, uh, from time to time, there were other times where we'd, you know, stand our ground and say mm-hmm. no. You know, when uh, that song, when I delivered it, MCA, which was uh, Irving Azov was the president at the time, and Irving came back and said, yeah, great, okay. So the song's called Somebody's Out There. We're going to do a video with, like, um, uh, like aliens, and <laughs> the, the things will go to outer space. Like, the camera will zoom back out of the earth and go to outer space because somebody's out there. <laughs> and I go, uh, you know, I don't... That's not what the song's about. The song's about people. The song's about human beings. It's about somebody being out there that, you know, could could work with, with another human being. That's that's what the song's about. It's about people connecting. Well, he didn't like that. You know, and it's probably not a smart political thing to reject what the president of the record company thinks is a, his own great idea, right? And Irving, yeah. everybody knows yeah, Irving's got a pretty big ego. Irving's got a pretty big sense of you know what he thinks should be and now would they spend the kind of money to push it you know would they would they go to the wall for the song probably not you know mm-hmm. now the record company's going to pull their punches um, financially speaking and so probably wasn't a smart idea i should have maybe just made the damn video with the aliens in it you know yeah. but you pick your fights right yeah and you pick your battles and and um so that was just, that's just one example but to be a little more specific about your question there are some record companies that have A&R men, mm-hmm. uh, or did, did, who were very hands-on. They, you know, they would be there helping to develop material. I mean, it's the old school thing. If you think about, say, the Frank Sinatra type recording artist in the 50s, mm-hmm. there would have been a record company president that hired a producer, and the producer says, okay, I'm going to go... Uh, the A&R man and the producer go and they find songwriters to bring the songs. And then Frank sits down with them and they go through the songs. And then there's an arranger. And so they hire the guy and he arranges the songs. And, and Frank just comes in and sings them. You know, mm-hmm. the Beatles changed everything. You know, right. the Beatles made it so that it was like, no, here's a self-contained unit. They write their own songs. They, you know, and then eventually they got to the point where they were telling George Martin, we don't want you anymore. Yeah. And, old man, you know, we're, we're going to produce this ourselves. We want to chase crazy new sounds and ideas. And so that sort of then became the norm. Mm-hmm. And there was less and less influence of record companies all the time. That was when we were heading towards an album era. And we're talking, you know, late 60s and into the early 70s, you know, the age of Led Zeppelin, you mm-hmm. know, kind of. And you'd look at them as the archetype of a band that kind of said, yeah, we're just going to make albums for FM radio in the United States. And mm-hmm. you wait, we're going to sell so many of them, we're going to be the biggest band in the world. And they were. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they didn't care. They didn't have to have a single that was three and a half minutes long. They did Stairway to Heaven, you know. So those kinds of things, uh, that changed the world, mm-hmm. you know. And and I lived through that and saw that, you know, in terms of what was going on in the business. But I, I think nowadays we have a much wider and, and obviously much more fragmented kind of a, of a music marketplace. And in some ways you can look at it and say, what, what marketplace? You know, everybody just downloads for free and there's, there's nowhere near the industry that there was. Yeah, But I do think that there's a lot of creativity still, and there's probably more creativity than there ever was. It's just that there's also a lot more junk. There's a lot yeah. more noise. There's a lot more. you got to crawl and scrape your way through stuff until you can finally find what you really like. But guaranteed you can find what you really like. You know, there, there's tons and tons of great artists out there. It's just it, it's harder and harder for them to to get themselves heard, to you know, to find a because it used to be that you had that record company and they would if they signed you well, now they were gonna champion you and they were right. gonna spend a lot of money to bring you to the public's attention and even that they were gonna fail nine times out of ten. Sure. Because the pub, the public is awful fickle, you know. Yeah. And so and then those things haven't changed. The public is still very fickle. There's yeah. just not as many big champions now that can play the big champion kind of game. So everybody's playing this kind of, you know, going at it in small amounts, building their demographic slice just a tiny little bit all the time, you know, trying to have patience. And, and so I think that there's some really great artistic stuff that goes on, you know. But... Mm. As as for us, you know, I don't think we were that much different than anybody else. I think, you know, the the amount of hands-on stuff, the amount of uh, letting them do what you want to do, it was it was relatively balanced, you know. See, and all of this is beside the point of you're inside a band, and so you're sitting down, you're doing pre-production. Well, now there's going to be the tyranny of democracy inside this, the politics of the band. Sure. Right. <laughs> so. That never goes away. Let's say the band is sitting around and the bass player goes, well, I think we should do this. And everybody says, well, it's not your song, so shut up. Yeah. Do what we tell you, you know. And then the drummer says, well, if I don't get a piece of the publishing, I'm going to quit. You know. Yeah. Those kinds of things happen in bands all the time. Yeah, right? that's absolutely the truth. Yeah, so that that's another part of the of the politics of who's mucking with stuff before it even gets to the public, never mind record company guys, the evil, terrible guys in their big black hats. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have that guy in your band sitting across the lunch table from you. Yeah, yeah, I think be a lot of people uh, discount the uh, the fact that not every band is all for one. Um, you know, I, the reason for my question, I just, I don't know if you had a chance to catch the, the relatively recent documentary they did on Kansas and kind of how the band evolved and that there were you know, really, the influence the record company had and the persistence of breaking the band it was very. Oh interesting. yeah, no, I haven't seen that, but I have heard of it on my members forum. There's been some discussion about it. The people that are Kansas fans, you know, they found it, you know, fascinating. Yeah, I think even for someone who's not a fan of Kansas, but you know, just wants a glimpse of how, you know, the amount of marketing and the, and the financial risk that the record company took uh, really made it uh, fascinating to kind of look at that because when you think of what Kansas sounded like, you know, in that era. Yep. It was kind of different, you know, and, you know, and it probably wasn't the easiest thing to sell, you know, a kind of a progressive hard rock band with a violin, you know, and just the persistence of the record company, but also the pressure from the record company to produce a hit. And, and yes. that was, you know, kind of where I was headed with, with the question. Yeah, yeah, no, I get you. 
But I mean, who, if you could, if you could time travel back, uh, who in their right mind would have sat down and listened to a song like Dust in the Wind and said, yeah, that's a hit? Yeah. You know, at, in that given point in time, it's not like there's a snare drum that's going two and four, and it's, you know, the mm-hmm. kids on American Bandstand are going to go, I love this, you can really dance to it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was, it, it was a, but we lived in a time when there could be those kinds of, you know, Queen could deliver, we, you know, um, Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. and it would be a hit. You know, so then who's going to tell you what a hit is? You yeah. know, it had become something that had uh, a much more imaginative uh, opportunity. Whereas, you know, in recent times, we we have the world of the Taylor Swifts and, mm-hmm. you know, American Idols and, and sure. you know, that kind of a thing. And, and you, you, a person might look at that and say, well, pfft, you know, those things are all kind of formulaic. Mm-hmm. And they kind of are, you know, like... Um, but you, you could listen to it the first time, and if you knew anything about the music business, you would be able to say, "Oh man, that's a hit! I can hear that. Totally, yeah. I can hear that." You know, and which is why there's those kinds of producers that exist that do the Adele albums, and then they go and do a Katy Perry album, and then they go and do a Rihanna album, and mm-hmm. it's the same cast of characters because they're now the same kind of thing of the way Mutt Lang could take. Def Leppard or or Shania Twain, and yeah, you'd hear it, and you'd go, yeah, well, boy, you know, they're stylistically, they're coming from a different place, but you can hear that hit-making yeah. kinds of, of, you know, stuff that's in there. Like, there's, you can't deny that stuff in terms yeah. of its pop sensibility. It's, it, you know, Mutt Lang knows what he's doing. Yeah. Like, yeah I mean, no one's going to ever say he doesn't know what he's doing. Brian Adams once did a whole record with Steve Lillywhite. And then threw it in the garbage and started again with Mutt Lang. That was the Waking Up the Neighbors album. Yeah, and we saw how that worked out. You know, look at yeah. he did Billy so, Ocean, and I mean, just the, yeah. the sheer amount of hits that Mutt had. Yeah. Um, yeah. So can't argue you that. know, but some people might look at that and think, well, that's 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 the most horrible sinning of all. You know, that's terrible. Like, wow, it's formula, but. You know, in another way, it's like, no, he just knows what a lot of people want to hear. It's like the David Foster kind of mm-hmm. world. You know, like, David Foster might, might not be your cup of tea, but he certainly is the cup of tea of an awful lot of people on the planet Earth. You sure. know, and he knows it. Yeah. He, he knows that his tastes and his sensibilities, his abilities are going to, boom, you know, like, land in that large, big chunk of demographic. Mm-hmm. So I think record companies chase that, you know, and and... Then now we live in a world where each little label then kind of goes, well, I'm, I'm, that's not what we do here. You yeah. know, we're going to do something else. And we're going to chase a small little sliver, and then when that little sliver catches, then we're going to, you know, see if we can't pump it up and make it a little bit wider and make it so that other people notice it. And yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it certainly has evolved quite a bit in the 30-plus years you've been doing this, so it's it's fascinating to get your take on that. Yeah, um, totally changed. Yeah, yeah, unbelievably. Um, uh, Rick, again, you're coming in on the 12th of June. You're going to be doing a show at the Hard Rock Cafe. Tickets are available at the Hard Rock Cafe. You'll be joined with uh, Dave Dunlap. Uh, we look forward to seeing you. There's a meet-and-greet package available there on the website as well, so chance to get to hang and uh, talk with you. It was always great, so... We want to thank you for coming on the show. We wish you all the best, man. Thank you, John. All right, again, a reminder, June 12th, Hard Rock Cafe, Station Square, Pittsburgh. Rick Emmett, uh, Dave Dunlap will be doing a show, doing some of their own material, some of 
Rick's material and obviously some Triumph classics as he talks about. And June 28th, First Niagara Pavilion, Kid Rock with special guest Foreigner. Um, cheap ticket for both of these shows. So really, uh, for those who talk to us, and, and we get a lot of interaction from fans on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Iron City Rocks, about how much tickets cost anymore. Uh, this is your chance to really kind of put your money where your mouth is for you know less than 40 bucks you're getting into both of these shows um so no reason not to get out there and have some good times uh, june and obviously going to be great weather so you don't have to worry about icy roads or anything finally and uh we want to invite you to check out ironcityrocks.com there have been a plethora of really good rock and metal shows coming through the area that we have photography from we've got sticks pictures up we've got in uh clutch mastodon um, the, the list goes on and on of pictures we have. We're also on Instagram for those of you who are uh, a little too trendy for Facebook. Instagram.com forward slash Iron City Rocks. Twitter.com forward slash Iron City Rocks. We invite you through the summer, especially when the concert season's heating up, to keep an eye on all of those because we do do quite a few ticket giveaways as well. Uh, we just gave away a boatload of tickets for Sticks and also for In Flames. So uh, whether you're a classic rocker or a metalhead, uh, you know, we kind of cover the gamut as well. So I'd like to thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, ironcityrocks at gmail.com. We take the time to read every email and uh, get back to you when we can. So until next time, we thank you for listening. <laughs>